Welcome to an Uvula audio production of L. Frank Baum's Queen Zixie of Ix, or the Story of the Magic Cloak. This book was originally published in 1906 in serial form in the children's magazine St. Nicholas. Your narrator will be Jay Campanella. Performance copyright 2006, all rights reserved. As a public service, we at Uvula Audio present L. Frank Baum's favorite work of fantasy in this unexpurgated and unabridged audio version. We hope that you enjoy both the book and its performance. And now, Queen Zixie of Ix. Chapter 1. The Weaving of the Magic Cloak The fairies assembled one moonlit night in a pretty clearing of the ancient forest of Bursey. The clearing was in the form of a circle, and all around stood giant oak and fir trees, while in the centre the grass grew green and soft as velvet. If any mortal had ever penetrated so far into the great forest, and could have looked upon the fairy circle by daylight, he might perhaps have seen a tiny path worn in the grass by the feet of the dancing elves. For here, during the full of the moon, the famous fairy band, ruled by good Queen Lulia, loved to dance and make merry, while the silvery rays flooded the clearing and caused their gauzy wings to sparkle with every colour of the rainbow. On this special night, however, they were not dancing, for the Queen had seated herself upon a little green mound, and while her band clustered about her, she began to address the fairies in a tone of discontent. "'I am tired of dancing, my dears,' she said. "'Every evening, since the moon grew big and round, we have come here to frisk about and laugh and disport ourselves, and although those are good things to keep the heart light, one may grow weary, even of merry-making.' "'so I ask you to suggest some new way "'to divert both me and yourselves during this night.' "'That is a hard task,' answered one of the pretty sprites, "'opening and folding her wings slowly, "'as a lady might toy with her fan. "'We've lived through so many ages "'that we long ago exhausted everything "'that might be considered a novelty, "'and of all our recreations "'nothing gives us such continued pleasure as dancing.' "'But I do not care to dance to-night,' replied Lulia, with a little frown. "'We might create something by virtue of our fairy powers,' suggested one who reclined at the feet of the queen. "'Ah, that is just the idea!' exclaimed dainty Lulia, with brightening countenance. "'Let us create something. But what?' "'I have heard,' remarked another member of the band, "'of a thinking cap having been made by some fairies in America, and whatever mortal wore this thinking-cap was able to conceive the most noble and beautiful thoughts. Well, that is indeed a worthy creation, cried the queen. What became of the cap? The man who received it was so afraid someone else would get it and be able to think the same exquisite thoughts as himself, he hid it safely away so safely that he himself never could think afterwards where he had placed it. How unfortunate! But we must not make another thinking-cap, lest it meet a similar fate. Cannot you suggest something else? 
I have heard, said another, of certain fairies who created a pair of enchanted boots which would always carry their mortal wearer away from danger and never into it. What a great boon to those blundering mortals, cried the queen. And whatever became of the boots? They came at last into the possession of a great general who did not know their powers. So he wore them into battle one day and immediately ran away, followed by all his men, and the fight was won by the enemy. But did not the general escape danger? Yes, at the expense of his reputation. So he retired to a farm and wore out the boots, trapping up and down a country road, trying to decide why he had suddenly become such a coward. The boots were worn by the wrong man, surely, said the queen, and that is why they proved a curse rather than a blessing. But we want no enchanted boots. Think of something else. Suppose we weave a magic cloak, proposed Espa, a sweet little fairy who had not spoken before. A cloak? Indeed, we might easily weave that, returned the queen. But what sort of magic power might it possess? Let its wearer have any wish instantly fulfilled, said Espa brightly. But at this there arose quite a murmur of protest on all sides, which the queen immediately silenced with a wave of her royal hand. Her sister did not think of the probable consequences of what she suggested, declared Lulia, smiling into the downcast face of little Espa, who seemed to feel rebuked by the disapproval of the others. An instant's reflection would enable her to see that such power would give the cloak's mortal wearer as many privileges as we ourselves possess. And I suppose you intended the magic cloak for a mortal wearer? she inquired. Yes, answered Esper shyly. That was my intention. But the idea is good none the less, continued the queen. And I propose we devote this evening to weaving that magic cloak. Only its magic shall give its wearer the fulfilment of but one wish, and I am quite sure that even that should prove a great boon to helpless mortals. Suppose more than one person wears the cloak, one of the band said. Which then shall have the one wish fulfilled? The queen devoted a moment to thought, and then replied, Each possessor of the magic cloak may have one wish granted, provided the cloak is not stolen from its last wearer. In that case, the magic power will not be exercised on behalf of the thief. But should there not be a limit to the number of the cloak's wearers? asked the fairy, lying at the queen's feet. I think not. If used properly, our gift will prove of great value to mortals, and if we find it misused, we can take it back at any time, and revoke its magic powers. So now, if we are all agreed upon this novel amusement, let us set to work. At these words, the fairies sprang up eagerly, and their queen, smiling upon them, waved her wand toward the centre of the clearing. At once a beautiful fairy loom appeared in the space. It was not such a loom as mortals use. It consisted of a large and a small ring of gold, supported by a tall pole of jasper. The entire band danced around it thrice, the fairies carrying in each hand a silver shuttle wound with glossy filaments finer than the finest silk. 
and the threads on each shuttle appeared a different hue from those of all the other shuttles. At a sign from the queen, they one and all approached the golden loom, and fastened an end of thread in its warp. Next moment they were gleefully dancing, hither and thither, while the silver shuttles flew swiftly from hand to hand, and the gossamer-like web began to grow upon the loom. Presently the queen herself took part in the sport, and the thread she wove into the fabric was the magical one which was destined to give the cloak its wondrous power. Long and swiftly the fairy band worked beneath the old moon's rays, while their feet tripped gracefully over the grass, and their joyous laughter tinkled like silver bells, and awoke the echoes of the grim forest surrounding them. And at last they paused and threw themselves upon the green with little sighs of content, for the shuttles and loom had vanished. The work was complete, and Queen Lulia stood upon the mound, holding in her hand the magic cloak. The garment was as beautiful as it was marvellous. Each and every hue of the rainbow glinted and sparkled from its soft folds, and while it was light in weight as swan's down, its strength was so great that the fabric was well-nigh indestructible. The fairy band regarded it with great satisfaction, for every one had assisted in its manufacture, and could admire with pardonable pride its glossy folds. "'It is very lovely indeed,' cried little Esper. "'But to whom shall we present it?' The question aroused a dozen suggestions, each fairy seeming to favour a different mortal. Every member of this band, as you doubtless know, was the unseen guardian of some man or woman or child in the great world beyond the forest, and it was but natural that each should wish her own ward to have the magic cloak. While they thus disputed, another fairy joined them and pressed to the side of the queen. "'Welcome, Ariel,' said Lulia. "'You are late.' The newcomer was very lovely in appearance, and with her fluffy golden hair and clear blue eyes was marvellously fair to look upon. In a low, grave voice she answered the queen. "'Yes, Majesty, I am late, but I could not help it. The old king of Noland, whose guardian I have been since his birth, has passed away this evening, and I could not bear to leave him until the end came. "'So the old king is dead at last,' said the queen, thoughtfully. "'He was a good man, but woefully uninteresting. He must have wearied you greatly at times, my sweet Ariel.' "'All mortals are, I think, wearisome,' returned the fairy with a sigh. "'And who is the new king of Noland?' asked Lulia. "'There is none,' answered Ariel. The old king died without a single relative to succeed to his throne, and his five high counsellors were in a great dilemma when I came away. Well, my dear, you may rest and enjoy yourself for a period in order to regain your old lightsome spirit. By and by I will appoint you guardian to some newly-born babe, that your duties may be less arduous. But I am sorry you are not with us to-night, for we have had rare sport. See, 
We have woven a magic cloak. Ariel examined the garment with pleasure. And who is to wear it? she asked. Then again arose the good-natured dispute as to which mortal in all the world should possess this magic cloak. Finally, the queen, laughing at the arguments of her band, said to them, Come, let us leave the decision to the man in the moon. He has been watching us with a great deal of amusement, and once, I am sure, I caught him winking at us in quite a roguish way. At this every head was turned toward the moon, and then a man's face, fully bearded and wrinkled, but with a jolly look upon the rough features, appeared sharply defined upon the moon's broad surface. "'So I am to decide another dispute, hmm?' he said in a clear voice. "'Well, my dears, what is it this time?' We wish you to say what mortals shall wear the magic cloak which I and the ladies of my court have woven, replied Queen Lulia. Give it to the first unhappy person you meet, said the man in the moon. The happy mortals have no need of magic cloaks. And with this advice, the friendly face of the man in the moon faded away until only the outlines remained visible against the silver disk. The queen clapped her hands delightedly. "'Our man in the moon is very wise,' she declared. "'And we shall follow his suggestion. "'Go, Ariel, since you are free for a time, "'and carry the magic cloak to Noland, "'and the first person you meet who is really unhappy, "'be it man, woman, or child, "'shall receive from you the cloak as a gift from our fairy band.' Ariel bowed and folded the cloak over her arm. "'Come, my children,' continued Lulia, "'the moon is hiding behind the treetops, "'and it is time for us to depart.' A moment later the fairies had disappeared, and the clearing wherein they had danced and woven the magic cloak lay shrouded in the deepest gloom. CHAPTER Two, THE BOOK OF LAWS on this same night, great confusion and excitement prevailed among the five high councillors of the kingdom of Noland. The old king was dead, and there was none to succeed him as ruler of the country. He had outlived every one of his relatives, and since the crown had been in this one family for generations, it puzzled the high councillors to decide upon a fitting successor. These five high councillors were very important men. It was said they ruled the kingdom while the king ruled them, which made it quite easy for the king and rather difficult for the people. The chief councillor was named Tullydub. He was old and very pompous, and had a great respect for the laws of the land. The next in rank was Tullydub, the Lord High General of the king's army. The third was Tillydib, the Lord High Purse-Bearer. The fourth was Tallydab, the Lord High Steward. And the fifth and last of the High Councillors was Tellydib, the Lord High Executioner. These five had been careful not to tell the people when the old king had become ill, for they feared being annoyed by many foolish questions. They sat in a big room, next to the bedchamber of the king, 
in the royal palace of Knoll, which is the capital city of Nolan, and kept every one out except the king's physician, who was half blind and wholly dumb, and could not gossip with outsiders had he wanted to. And while the high councillor sat and waited for the king to recover, or die, as he might choose, Jicky waited upon them and brought them their meals. Jicky was the king's valet and principal servant. He was as old as any of the five high councillors, but they were all fat, whereas Jicky was wonderfully lean and thin, and the councillors were solemn and dignified, whereas Jicky was terribly nervous and very talkative. "'Beg pardon, my masters,' he would say every five minutes, "'but do you think His Majesty will get well?' And then, before any of the high councillors could collect themselves to answer, he continued, "'Beg pardon, but do you think His Majesty will die?' And the next moment he would say, "'Beg pardon, but do you think His Majesty is any better or worse?' And all this was so annoying to the high councillors that several times one of them took up some object in the room with the intention of hurling it at Jicky's head. But before he could throw it, the old servant had nervously turned away and left the room. Tellydeb, the Lord High Executioner, would often sigh. I wish there was some law that would permit me to chop off Jicky's head. But then Tullydub, the High Councillor would say gloomily, There is no law but the King's will, and he insists that Jicky will be allowed to leave. So they were forced to bear with Jicky as best they could. But after the King breathed his last breath, the old servant became more nervous and annoying than ever. Hearing that the King was dead, Jicky made a rush for the door of the bell-tower, but tripped over the foot of Tollydob and fell upon the marble floor, so violently that his bones rattled. He picked himself up half-dazed by the fall. "'Where are you going?' asked Tollydob. "'To toll the bell for the king's death,' answered Jicky. "'Well, remain here until we give you permission,' commanded the Lord High General. "'But the bell, it ought to be tolled,' said Jicky. "'Be silent,' growled the Lord High Purse-Bearer. "'We know what ought to be done and what ought not to be done.' But this was not strictly true. In fact, the five high councillors did not know what ought to be done under these strange circumstances. If they told the people the king was dead, and did not immediately appoint his successor, then the whole population would lose faith in them, and fall to fighting and quarrelling among themselves as to who should become king. And that would never in the world do. No, it was evident that a new king must be chosen before they told the people that the old king was dead. But whom should they choose for the new king? That was the important question. While they talked of these matters, the ever-active Jicky kept rushing in and out, saying, "'Hadn't I better toll the bell?' "'No,' they would shout in chorus, and then Jicky would rush out again. So they sat and thought and counselled together, during the whole of the long night, and by morning they were no nearer a solution to the problem than before. At daybreak, Jicky stuck his head into the room and said, "'Hadn't I better—' "'No!' they all shouted in a breath. "'Very well,' returned Jicky. "'I was only going to ask if I hadn't better get you some breakfast.' 
Yes, they cried again in one breath. And shall I toll the bell? No, they screamed. And the Lord High Steward threw an inkstand that hit the door several seconds after Jicky had closed it, and disappeared. While they were at breakfast, they again discussed their future action in the choice of a king, and finally the chief high counsellor had a thought that caused him to start so suddenly that he nearly choked. The book, he gasped, staring at his brother counsellors in a rather wild manner. What book? asked the Lord High General. The book of laws, answered the chief counsellor. I never knew such a thing existed. "'remarked the Lord High Executioner, looking rather puzzled. "'I always thought the King's will was law.' "'So it was when we had a King,' answered Tully Dub excitedly. "'But this book of laws was written years ago, "'and was meant to be used when the King was absent or ill or asleep.' "'For a moment there was silence. "'Have you ever read the book?' asked Tilly Dib. "'No, but I will fetch it at once, and we will see if there is not a law to help us out of our difficulty.' So the chief counsellor brought the book. It was a huge old volume that had a musty spell to it, and was locked together with a silver padlock. Then the key had to be found, which was no easy task. But finally the great book of laws lay open upon the table, and all the five periwigs of the five fat counsellors were bent over it at once. Long and earnestly they searched the pages, but it was not until afternoon that Tullydub suddenly placed his broad thumb upon a passage and shouted, I have it! I have it! What? What is it? Read it! Read it aloud! cried the others. Just then, Chicky rushed into the room and asked, Shall I toll the bell? No! they yelled, glaring at him. So Jicky ran out, shaking his head dolefully. Then Tullydub adjusted his spectacles and leaned over the book, reading aloud the following words. In case the king dies, and there is no one to succeed him, the chief counsellor of the kingdom shall go at sunrise to the eastward gate of the city of Nole and count the persons who enter through such gate as soon as it is opened by the guards. The forty-seventh person that so enters the gate, be it man, woman, or child, rich or poor, humble or noble, shall immediately be proclaimed king or queen, as the case may be, and shall rule all the kingdom of Noland for ever after, so long as he or she may live. And if any one in all the kingdom of Nol shall refuse to obey the slightest wish of the new ruler, such person shall at once be put to death. This is the law. Then all the five high counsellors heaved a mighty sigh of relief, and repeated together the words, This is the law. But it is a strange law nonetheless, remarked the Lord High Purse Bear. I wish I knew who would be the forty-seventh person to enter the East Gate tomorrow at sunrise. We must wait and see, answered the Lord High General, 
and I will have my army assembled and marshaled at the gateway, that the new ruler of Noland may be welcomed in a truly kingly fashion, as well as to keep the people in order when they hear the strange news. Beg pardon, exclaimed Jicky, looking in the doorway. But shall I toll the bell? No, you numbskull, retorted Tullydub angrily. If the bell is tolled, the people will be told, and they must not know that the old king is dead until the forty-seventh person enters the east gateway tomorrow morning. Chapter 3 The Gift of the Magic Cloak Nearly two days' journey from the city of Nole, yet still within the borders of the great kingdom of Noland, was a little village lying at the edge of a broad river. It consisted of a cluster of houses of the humblest description, for the people of this village were all poor and lived in simple fashion. Yet one house appeared to be somewhat better than the others, for it stood on the river bank and had been built by the ferryman whose business it was to carry all the travellers across the river. And as many travelled that way, the ferryman was able in time to erect a very comfortable cottage, and to buy good furniture for it, and to clothe warmly and neatly his two children. One of these children was a little girl named Margaret, who was called Meg by the villagers, and Fluff by the ferryman, her father, because her hair was so soft and fluffy. Her brother, who was two years younger, was named Timothy, but Margaret had always called him Bud, because she could not say brother more plainly when she first began to talk. So nearly everyone who knew Timothy called him Bud, as little Meg did. These children had lost their mother when very young and the big ferryman had tried to be both mother and father to them, and had reared them very gently and lovingly. They were good children, and were liked by everyone in the village. But one day a terrible misfortune befell them. The ferryman tried to cross the river for a passenger one very stormy night, but he never reached the other shore. When the storm subsided and morning came, they found his body lying on the river bank, and the two children were left alone in the world. The news was carried by travellers to the city of Nold, where the ferryman's only sister lived. And a few days afterwards, the woman came to the village and took charge of her orphaned niece and nephew. She was not a bad-hearted woman, this Aunt Rivette, but she had worked hard all her life and had a stern face and a stern voice. She thought the only way to make children behave was to box their ears every now and then. So poor Meg, who had been well-nigh heartbroken at her dear father's loss, had still more occasion for tears after Aunt Rivette came to the village. As for Bud, he was so impudent and ill-mannered to the old woman that she felt obliged to spank him with a switch, and afterwards the boy became surly and silent, and neither wept nor answered his aunt a single word. It hurt Margaret dreadfully to see her little brother whipped, 
and she soon became so unhappy at the sorrowful circumstances in which she and her brother found themselves, that she sobbed from morning till night, and knew no comfort. Aunt Rivette, who was a laundress in the city of Knoll, decided she would take Meg and Bud back home with her. "'The boy can carry water for my tubs, and the girl can help me with my ironing,' she said. So she sold all the heavier articles of furniture that the cottage contained, as well as the cottage itself, and all the remainder of her dead brother's belongings she loaded upon the back of a little donkey she had ridden on her journey from Knoll. It made such a pile of packages that the load seemed bigger than the donkey itself, but he was a strong little animal and made no complaint of his burdens. All this being accomplished, they set out one morning for Knoll, Aunt Rivette leading the donkey by the bridle with one hand, and little Bud with the other, while Margaret followed behind, weeping anew at this sad parting with her old home and all she had ever loved. It was a hard journey. The old woman soon became cross and fretful, and scolded the little ones at almost every step. When Bud stumbled, as he often did, for he was unused to walking very far, Aunt Rivette would box his ears and shake him violently by the arm, or tell him he was a good-for-nothing little beggar. And then Bud would turn upon her with a revengeful look in his eyes, but say not a word. The woman paid no attention to Meg, who continued to follow, with tearful and drooping head. The first night they obtained shelter at a farmhouse, but in the morning it was found that the boy's feet were so swollen and sore from the long walk of the day before that he could not stand upon them. So Aunt Rivette, scolding fretfully at his weakness, perched Bud among the bundles atop the donkey's back, and in this way they journeyed the second day, the woman walking ahead and leading the donkey, and Margaret following behind. The laundress had hoped to reach the city of Knoll at the close of the day, but the overburdened donkey would not walk very fast, so nightfall found them still two hours' journey from the city's gates, and they were forced to stop at a small inn. But this inn was already overflowing with travellers, but the landlord could give them no beds, nor even a room. "'You can sleep in the stable if you like,' he said. "'There is plenty of hay to lie down upon.' So they were obliged to content themselves with this poor accommodation. The old woman aroused them at the first streaks of daybreak the next morning, and while she fastened the packages to the donkey's back, Margaret stood in the stable-yard and shivered in the cold morning air. The little girl felt she had never been more unhappy than at that moment, and when she thought of her kind father and happy home she had once known, her sobs broke out afresh, and she leaned against the stable-door and wept as if her little heart would break. Suddenly someone touched her arm, and she looked up to see a tall and handsome youth standing before her. It was none other than Ariel the fairy, who had assumed this form for her appearance among mortals, and over the youth's arm lay the folded magic cloak that had been woven the evening before in the fairy circle of Bursey. "'Are you very unhappy, my dear?' asked Ariel in kindly tones. 
"'I am the most unhappy person in all the world,' replied the girl, beginning to sob afresh. "'Then,' said Ariel, "'I will present you with this magic cloak, which has been woven by the fairies, and while you wear it you may have your first wish granted, and if you give it freely to another mortal, that person may also have their wish granted. So use the cloak wisely, little one, and guard it as a great treasure. Saying this, the fairy messenger spread the folds of the cloak and threw the brilliant-hued garment over the shoulders of the girl. Just then Aunt Rivette led the donkey from the stable, and seeing the beautiful cloak which the child wore, stopped short and demanded, "'Where did you get that?' "'The stranger gave it to me,' answered Meg, pointing to the youth. "'Take it off! Take it off this minute, and give it to me, or I will whip you soundly!' cried the old woman. "'Stop!' said Ariel sternly. "'The cloak belongs to this child alone, and if you dare take it from her, I will punish you severely.' "'What? Punish me? Punish me, you rascally fellow! We shall see about that!' "'We will, indeed,' returned Ariel more calmly. "'The cloak is a gift from the fairies, and you dare not anger them, for your punishment would be swift and terrible.' Now no one feared to provoke the mysterious fairies more than Aunt Rivette, but she suspected the youth was not telling her the truth. So she rushed upon Ariel and struck him with her upraised cane. But to her amazement the form of the youth vanished quickly into the air, and then, indeed, she knew it was a fairy who had spoken to her. "'You may keep your cloak,' she said to Margaret, with a little shiver of fear. "'I would not touch it for the world!' The girl was very proud of her glittering garment, and when Bud was perched upon the donkey's back, and the old woman trudging along the road to the city, Meg followed after with much lighter steps than before. Presently, the sun rose over the horizon, and its splendid rays shone upon the cloak and made it glisten gloriously. "'Ah, me!' sighed the little girl half aloud. "'I wish I could be happy again.' Then her childish heart gave a bound of delight, and she laughed aloud and brushed from her eyes the last tear she was destined to shed for many a day. For though she spoke thoughtlessly, the magic cloak quickly granted to its first wearer the fulfilment of her wish. Aunt Rivette turned upon her in surprise. "'What's the matter with you?' she asked suspiciously, for she had not heard the girl laugh since her father's death. "'Why, the sun is shining,' answered Meg, laughing again, "'and the air is sweet and fresh, and the trees are green and beautiful, and the whole world is very pleasant and delightful.' And then she danced lightly along the dusty road, and broke into a verse of a pretty song she had learned at her father's knee. The old woman scowled and trudged on again. Bud looked down at his merry sister and grinned, from pure sympathy with her high spirits. The donkey stopped and turned his head to look solemnly at the laughing girl behind him. "'Come along!' cried the laundress, jerking at the bridle. "'Everyone is passing us along the road, and we must hurry to get home before noon.' It was true. A good many travellers, some on horseback and some on foot, had passed them since the sun rose. 
and although the east gate of the city of Knoll was now in sight, they were obliged to take their places in a long line that sought entrance 